Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship Show. Well, gold closed the week pretty much at the highest weekly close since January of 2015, not quite above the 1300 benchmark. I think we closed about 1298, up about 20 bucks on the day. Intraday yesterday, gold was well above 1300 until there was news that a British member of parliament was shot and that somehow revived some kind of hope that maybe the Brexit vote won't go to Brexit, but to stay because apparently the MP who was shot was very much in favor of uh, Britain remaining in the EU. And I guess the thought was maybe this would cause the vote to be delayed or maybe it may sway public opinion against the Brexit vote. But in any event, when this news story broke, there was a big reversal in the British pound, which was down at the start of the rally. And then gold, which was at the high for the year, was you know well into the 1300s. I forget where it was, above 1310. Gold dumped about 40 bucks on the idea that maybe there won't be a Brexit, as if the price of gold is, is going up because of fears that Britain may leave the EU. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, next week's vote is a is a non-event for the gold market. I mean, I don't even know if it's good or bad. I mean, the conventional wisdom seems to be that if uh, Britain leaves, all hell's going to break loose in Europe. In fact, maybe the entire planet, right? Everything rests on whether or not Britain stays in the EU. And I guess all this chaos is supposed to be bullish for gold. But... If Britain votes to stay, then that's supposedly bullish for Europe. It means the euro is going to go up, and that might be bearish for gold. I don't know. I mean, if, I mean, excuse me, that might be bullish for gold because a weak dollar is generally bullish for gold. So maybe gold will go up 
if Britain stays in, in the EU, and maybe it'll go up if they vote to leave. I mean, that's pretty much the way I look at it. I, I kind of think gold's going to go up regardless of the way the British vote. I mean, you know, I've talked several times that I think that they should vote to leave. But I think whether they stay or whether they go, it's really not going to influence my decision on whether or not I want to own gold. But somehow, I guess a lot of people jump to the conclusion that the gold trade is about an uncertainty trade, about a political chaos trade. But that's not really what's going on here. The price of gold is not going up because of what's happening in Europe. It's going on because of what's happening in the United States, more specifically in Washington, and even more specifically at the Federal Reserve. You know, the Federal Reserve had their June meeting. It concluded on Wednesday. They had the meeting on Tuesday. You know, I would have liked to have done this podcast sooner, uh, but as you can tell from the one I recorded uh, on Monday, I was actually out of town all week. And every time I do these, you know, I always have trouble getting the sound right. So rather than doing another poor quality sound, I waited till I got back to my studio to record uh, to record the podcast. But the the meeting concluded on Wednesday, and Janet Yellen, surprise, surprise, did not raise interest rates. Now, again, if you remember, in I thought it was a few months ago when there were some minutes that were leaked from the FOMC meeting. Everybody was like, oh, the Fed's going to go in June for sure. It's going to be June, maybe July, but probably June. And gold tanked and the dollar rallied and everybody was talking about this. And remember, I said, I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing in these minutes that says the Fed's going to do anything. It's the same old, same old. It's the same old open mouth operations. And if you read between the lines, they didn't commit to doing anything. If anything, they just, you know, it was more of the same. And to me, it looked like uh, nothing was going to happen. But everybody bought again. I mean, she cried wolf and everybody came running. And not only did the Fed not raise rates in June, but they actually backtrack on their intentions to raise rates in the future. Right. The, the, the so-called dot plots, which is where the FOMC members see interest rates at some given point of time in the future. They toned that down as far as how many rate hikes they think might even happen next year. I mean, everything got pulled back. And so now, instead of announcing the, the second hike, the first hike of this year, and getting more you know uh, hawkish, they actually did the reverse. They actually took rate hikes off the table or pushed them further back into, into time than people had thought a few couple of months ago when those, those minutes were leaked. In fact, if you listen to... Janet Yellen's press conference. I mean, obviously, people like Steve Leisman, these guys are getting very frustrated, right? Because the Fed keeps saying they're going to raise rates, right? And they don't do it, right? Line, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Lucy keeps teeing up that football, and there's Steve Leisman running down to kick it. And then, uh, you know, she, she yanks it away, and he keeps getting pissed at her because he keeps ending up on his behind uh, kicking air. And you can see the frustration and the questions as to, you know, What's going on here? In fact, there were a lot of articles about the Fed losing credibility, about the Fed surrendering, uh, capitulating. I mean, yeah, all this stuff is what I've been forecasting. I mean, everybody is surprised by this. Like, why is the Fed doing this? I mean, if they had just been listening to my podcast instead of, you know, the conventional uh, uh, media, they would know. I mean, none of this is a surprise to anybody who's been a faithful listener to this podcast. It's just the people who listen to the bubbleheads, uh, the talking heads on you know the major financial networks that are surprised by what's going on. I mean, they actually expected 
the Fed to raise rates. And why do they expect that? Because they actually think that the Fed's policies have worked. They actually think we have a recovery. They haven't figured out that it's a bubble. You know, they never figured out until after the bubble has burst. You know, I was watching to get on CBC today, this Joe Kernan, who does the Squawk Box, which, you know, they never have me on anymore. But leading up to the financial crisis, that was the CNBC show I did the most. Those were the guys that labeled me Dr. Doom. They came up with that lame name because I was forecasting all the doom that actually happened. And he was on there talking about how economists never get things right because he was talking about the Fed and, you know, how they thought they were going to raise rates because they thought the economy would be stronger. And it turns out they're wrong. And he said, look, the economies, economists never get it right. Um, you know, there's whenever there's consensus, they're always wrong. He said, for example, all the economists thought that there was no problem with the subprime market. All the economists said that it's not nothing to worry about. That subprime is not going to affect the entire mortgage market, let alone the economy. And he said so. And all the economists was wrong. I'm like, oh, what am I? Wait a minute. I mean, what am I here? Chop liver? I mean, I guess maybe you don't consider me an economist because I don't have a you know PhD in economics. I don't have the title. Like, I don't have a job on Wall Street where I'm a I'm a professional economist. But I'm I'm as much an economist as anybody else wants to claim to be an economist. And I predicted it. I predicted it on the show. Joe Kernan heard me make those predictions. But all of a sudden, you know, people just conveniently forget because they don't want to they don't want to acknowledge that there was anyone that could figure it out, let alone me, because now, you know, they don't want to give me the credibility because look what I'm saying now. I'm predicting an even bigger disaster and we're going to get it. But, you know, if you go and look at the press conference that Janet Yellen gave following this, as I mentioned, you know, one of the things she said is she's still talking about, well, July, right, because she didn't raise rates in June. And somebody asked her, well, what about July? Now, if she was being honest, she would have said, well, why would we raise rates in July? I mean, we didn't raise one in June. And, and so, you know, what's going to change in a month, right? If we didn't think the economy was strong enough for a rate hike, why is that all going to change, uh, you know, in July, right? That would be a more honest answer. But again, she's still on script, on message, which is, you know, we're going to raise rates. So this is what Janet Yellen said. And I'm not making this up. She said, well, I guess it's not impossible that we could raise rates in July. So that's what it's come to. It's come, it's come from we're probably going to raise rates, right? It's probably going to be appropriate to raise rates in June or July. And now we're at, well, you know, I guess it's not impossible that we'll raise rates in July. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that are not impossible, right? I mean, it's not impossible that aliens are going to invade the Earth in July, right? I mean, that's not impossible, right? I mean, it could happen. I mean, there probably are aliens out there somewhere, and maybe they're going to choose July to invade the Earth, right? The question is, which one is more likely, a July alien invasion or a rate hike from the Fed? Because, you know, if those are the two choices, I'm kind of leading to the aliens, you know? Because I, I kind of think that that's a little bit uh, more likely than the Fed raising rates in July. But Yellen, you know, still wants to maintain that this is all possible. To, why? Because she has to pretend that everything worked, right? The proof that it worked is the raising of the rates, right? That is the, everything is better. Everything is back to normal, right? We could raise rates. They can't raise rates. They're stuck, they're at a quarter. I mean, they're practically zero. You know, and of course, they haven't even started on shrinking their balance sheet, right? Because first they want to raise rates and then they want to shrink their balance sheet. Well, when are they going to shrink the balance sheet if they still can barely get rates off the floor? Meantime, 
Look at how bad the jobs numbers are. I talked about the abysmal jobs numbers. Janet Yellen, of course, mentioned that the labor market is now concerning her, uh, that the, you know, the job strength is dissipating. And, of course, I think we're going to get another jobs report, and it's going to be, you know, a, 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 a turkey. Right? I think we're going to get three bad ones in a row. I think the next report could even be worse than the last report, judging by a lot of the other numbers that are out there in the economy. Meanwhile, the one thing that is going up are consumer prices. You know, inflation is going up. Core CPI is above the Fed's so-called 2% target. They're not raising rates. You know, initially, they were going to raise rates if unemployment got below 65 Well, it got below 5 I mean, and they, you know, they barely raised them. In fact, we are still at a fraction of where rates were at the depths of the 2001 recession, right? I mean, what happened in 2001? Well, we had the bursting of the dot-com bubble and we had an implosion in the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ went down about 90% or 80% rather. It went from 5,000 in 2000 to about 1,100 in 2002, right? A huge stock market crash. Lots of paper wealth evaporated. Then we got September 11th, 2001. Right? We had a massive terrorist attack, which rocked the nation. Right? What did that do to consumer confidence? What did that do to the airline industry? Remember, I mean, all the airlines practically went bankrupt uh, because of September 11th. Right? I mean, that cost a fortune uh, to the airlines. People forget what happened to that industry at that point of time. And then, of course, you know, we're starting up for war. You know, we had this big peace dividend. And now, all of a sudden, we got to spend the peace dividend on the war on terror. Right? So, all of a sudden, we had to ramp up all this spending uh, on terror, this was a big deal. And as a result of all these problems, Alan Greenspan lowered interest rates to 1% because things were so bad. And then, you know, as things recovered, which really wasn't a recovery, it was a bubble, a housing bubble, well, they started to raise rates. Well, the Fed's got interest rates now at between a quarter and a half of a percent. So let's say the midpoint there is, what, 0.3, which is, what, a third of 1%. So what the Fed is basically saying, that this economy, after a, what, seven-year recovery, is actually weaker than the U.S. economy was at the depths of the prior recession, not the, the Great Recession, but the one before that, because they can't even raise interest rates to 1%. That's how weak this economy is. It's weaker than it was in the aftermath of September 11th and in the aftermath of the bursting of the of the dot-com bubble. And this is supposedly this great economic miracle that President Obama is bragging about having created and the economic miracle that Hillary Clinton wants to ride on into the White House and claim to continue all this great stuff. Yet this great economy is so weak that it can't even handle the accommodative monetary policy that was necessary following the bursting of the dot-com bubble and September 11th. And I've said this many times on this podcast, but if the recovery is this weak, I mean, this recovery is weaker than most recessions, right? So if this recovery is weaker than your typical recession, imagine, imagine what the next recession is going to be like. Because normally a recession follows a pretty good boom, right? But if this is our boom, if, if this recovery is like a recession, what's the next recession going to be like? Obviously, a depression. Right. That's where we're headed. And the Fed, maybe they know this. That's why they, they're not going to raise interest rates. They're not going to raise interest rates in June. They're not going to raise interest rates in July. They're probably not raising interest rates at all until 
eventually they have to because there's a currency crisis and the dollar's in free fall, inflation's spiraling out of control, and then they have no chance. But in the meantime, I still think what's more likely is that the Fed is going to rate, cut interest rates rather than raise them. In fact, that's, that's a lot more likely than an alien invasion, right? If I had a, I guess I would say that maybe the Fed would cut rates in July. But I still think that they're going to hold out on a rate cut if they can, if they can, until after the election. And the reason is, again, is that a rate cut is an official admission that there's a problem. And even if they try to blame it on Europe or China or something like that, you know, it, it's not going to play out well if the Fed has to rescue the economy and, you know, and take away a lot of the credit that Hillary Clinton wants to claim, right? That he, she wants to run on Obama's record. And if there's, the Fed is admitting the economy is weak, then that takes the wind out of her sail. But if the economy is so weak, Maybe the Fed won't have a choice. I mean, there might be a lot of pressure on the Fed to do something if it's obvious to everybody that everything is imploding. But if they have their druthers, they're going to try to wait until after the election to unroll another stimulus, because then it doesn't really matter. I mean, whether it's Clinton, whether it's Trump, I mean, they might as well go out and do what they want to do, which is print money, cut interest rates, uh, do QE4. Of course, it's not going to work. But that's not going to stop them from doing it because that's the only thing they can do. And again, they're still convinced that it's going to work. And as I start off the podcast, you know, gold just below 1300 And I think it could explode above it next week. I mean, we'll see. There's some resistance up there. But I think, you know, every time we get above it, we've been above 1300 a couple of times. We never really close there. But I think once we, uh, once we take it out, I think there's going to be a lot, a lot of buying but again, we've had this pretty good run up in the price of gold with everybody expecting the Fed to hike rates. You know, they've been dialing back when they believe those hikes are coming, but the anticipation is still for you know, higher rates just when. But imagine how much stronger gold is going to be when people no longer believe in the tooth fairy, right? They no longer believe that we're going to get higher interest rates and they start factoring in lower interest rates. They start factoring in quantitative easing. And not just factoring it in, but they have to absorb it because the Fed is actually doing it. So if gold can be this strong when people believe the Fed is going to tighten. Imagine how much stronger it will be when they realize that it's going to ease. And also, this is going to be problematic for the U.S. dollar. The dollar was broadly lower on the week, not uh, a big collapse, but it was down pretty much across the board. With the exception of the Japanese yen, the uh, yen gained about two and a half percent on the week against the dollar, which is a big move uh, in the Forex markets. And the catalyst, I think, was I think the Bank of Japan uh, announced that there was no additional stimulus that they were about to unleash. And so the fact that they weren't about to print even more money than they're already printing was enough to send people scrambling uh, into the yen. And, you know, there's a lot of cross-trading that goes on. The yen is a, a funding currency, uh, carry-trade currency, because it's so cheap to borrow. And I think when this happened, too, there was a lot of pair trading because that day the yen was way up and all the other currencies were down, not only against the yen, but they were they were down against the dollar. Uh, but those currencies are starting to to bounce back. And of course, there will probably be a lot of action in both the euro and the pound and and the Swiss franc and some of these countries currencies next week in response to the the Brexit vote. But again, I've said before, I think that a lot of this is being deliberately 
overhyped by the media, especially in Europe, because the idea is they, they want to scare uh, the, the British into voting to stay because they want to talk about how horrible it's going to be if they vote to leave. But, of course, if they do vote to leave, they don't want it to be horrible. And so I think it'll be very easy for Britain to negotiate trade deals. I don't think all the trade is going to grind to a halt uh, between Britain and the rest of Europe. Look, Europe trades with everybody. They trade with Switzerland. They're not in the EU. Uh, they certainly trade with countries that aren't in Europe. Japan's not in there. You know, China's not in there. The United States is not in there. I mean, does the whole world have to be in the EU? Of course not. And so what difference does it make? The, the big difference might be that if, if Britain leaves and the world doesn't end, then other countries might decide they want to leave too. And so maybe it'll be a good thing is maybe, uh, maybe Brussels will have to start rethinking some of these regulations and say, you know what? You know, if we, we, we got to ease back because we're making things so uncomfortable uh, that a lot of the members might not want to be in the club anymore. And it could be a good thing if it forces uh, uh, government to contract. It sends a message uh, to the bureaucrats over there in Brussels that, you know, people don't like all these rules and regulations. They don't like these taxes. They don't want the country micromanaged from Brussels. They, they signed up for a free trade zone, not a, not a federal government like we have in the United States. They wanted less government. They didn't want more government. And this is a rejection of big government, not of, uh, not of free trade. I want to uh, talk a little bit, though, about gun control. You know, first of all, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that there was a member of parliament that was gunned down. She was shot and killed by a militant. I think he maybe even a neo-Nazi. Of course, uh, they're trying to spin it somehow uh, in a way to try to rally support for remaining in the EU. But Britain has very, very strict gun control laws. And it certainly didn't prevent this crime. It, this particular criminal murderer uh, was able to get his hands on a gun, uh, despite all the laws uh, that, that make it illegal. But of course, we had a much bigger terrorist incident here in the United States down in Orlando. Actually, there were two. First, there was, I mean, there was a pop star that was shot and gunned down. This is somebody, a contestant on the show, The Voice. And I forget how many days passed between this uh, singer being gunned down and the terrorist uh, murdering 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And of course, whenever you see one of these things and, you know, closer to home, I mean, the, we had the Newtown shootout where, you know, all the little kids were shot, pre, not preschool, but they were third grade, fourth graders. I forget the exact age, but Newtown is very close uh, to where I live. I'm in Westport. I mean, it's a half hour away. It's here in Connecticut. So that was a, a big deal locally. But of course, this story uh, is, you know, just as big nationally. Uh, I think there were, you know, there are more people in total numbers. In fact, I think this is now the largest massacre in U.S. history. The the massacre, I think, I think the 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 nature of the Newtown one, because it was little kids involved, probably uh, may have been one that was even worse for uh, people to handle. Just the thought of, you know, these little kids being being gunned down. Not that I'm diminishing the lives of adults, uh, but just, you know, people thinking, parents thinking about losing children so young and having children so young. I mean, that was, to me, a little bit more horrific. Again, not that I have, I'm devaluing the lives of these individuals or the fact that, you know, they, I guess it was, a, it was a gay club, but I'm not, you know, it has nothing to do with saying, you know, I'd be saying the same thing if it was a straight nightclub. Just, you know, the thought of little kids 
Uh, so that you know, I I think people get what I'm talking about. But numbers wise, this was this was more people, and of course, this is where the gun control argument even is weaker, right? Because obviously, the little kids aren't going to be armed. I mean, no one is going to advocate that you know third graders should be packing heat when they go to school. But of course, the teachers should have had guns. I mean that. That would have been a big thing if the if the teachers in Newtown had a gun. Uh, yeah, you know that might have that might have uh, prevented this. But of course, if the teacher's going with a gun and the gunman shoots the teacher, well, okay, now the teacher's dead and all the kids are are defenseless. But here's it's a very different story in in that Pulse nightclub because of course all the media is like, oh, you see. We need gun control. Here, another mass murder, mass shooting. If only we had gun control, this wouldn't have happened, right? Which is complete nonsense. Now, first of all, this guy, right, was had a license to carry. He had a concealed carry permit. He was a security guard. So, I mean, are you going to have a law that says security guards can't have guns? I mean, so there's. I don't think there's, you know, there's any gun control that would have prevented this. He, he, he passed all the background checks. Now, now I can see somebody arguing, well, you know, then we shouldn't even have nobody should be able to get a gun. Right. We, sh- we shouldn't have concealed carry background checks, waiting periods. We should just make it flat out illegal for anybody to have a gun, including the security guards. Right. I mean, hey, why don't we go a step further? Why don't we make it illegal for the police to have guns? Right. Why don't we say nobody can have guns? Because, you know, somebody could get shot with a stray bullet file- fired by a policeman. I mean, a policeman could get drunk and just start shooting people. Right. I mean, are they any more responsible than an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer? I mean, is, you know, is a policeman, you know, somehow less likely to just start shooting people than any other occupation? I wouldn't say so. But if you just say, OK, you know, let's just make it illegal to, to get a gun. Do you think this crazy guy, this, you know, obsessed with ISIS and, you know, going to heaven and getting all his virgins or whatever he was planning on on receiving for for doing this wonderful thing in his mind, right? Taking out all these uh, horrible infidels, um, and whether any of it was motivated by their sexuality or just the fact that you know they were American, I don't know. But does anybody think that if it was illegal to buy a gun, that he wouldn't have got one? Of course. I mean, look, heroin is illegal. Right? Nobody can legally buy heroin or cocaine. They're illegal everywhere. But, I mean, do, do people have problems getting those illegal substances? No. I, I mean, so how are you going to keep guns out of the hands of criminals? You can't keep drugs out of the hands of criminals, right? People, people buy drugs all the time. It's not legal. You know, I've, even in prisons, you know, there's a drug problem in prison. Now, how are prisoners getting drugs? And I always said that if, if you can't keep drugs— right out of prisons because prisoners have no rights right and they're in prison they're under lockup if the security guards can't keep drugs from prisoners right how is the government going to keep drugs out of the hands of people who are free to roam about the whole country right and the same thing goes for guns right they can't keep the drugs out they can't keep the guns out but if they do make it illegal to have guns You know who doesn't have guns? The law-abiding citizens. They're the ones who don't have guns because they have respect for the law. The criminals, by definition, have no respect for the law. I mean, this guy, Mateen, he had no respect for human life. He gunned down 49 innocent people and tried to kill more. So why would he have respect for the law 
that says you can't have a gun. Now, how would things have been different at that nightclub? Well, what if a few of the people who were there also had concealed carry permits and brought their guns to the nightclub? Do you think this guy would have been able to kill 49 people before somebody killed him? I don't think so. I mean, he would have killed a few. No question about that. But, you know, this is a dark nightclub. I mean, people are hiding. I mean, he's, you know, somebody would have shot him from somewhere, right? I mean, and even if you don't have a gun yourself, I mean, I own a gun. Um, I have a concealed carry permit. And I don't, you know, necessarily normally walk out, work, walk out of the house, carry my gun. But let's say I was in a situation where I was in a crowded area, would I feel more comfortable if I knew there were several people, law-abiding people, that had guns with them? Sure. Because if somebody decided to open fire, at least I knew that there was somebody else that might fire back. And, and so even if you don't have a gun, you want your neighbor to have a gun. You want other honest people to have guns. Because otherwise, everybody's just a sitting duck. And the criminals know that. They know if they're the only one with a gun then they have nothing to worry about. In fact, I think if you even look at some of the statistics, I mean, when you have states that have, uh, you know, make it easier for honest people to have guns, you have less crime. I mean, if I was a criminal, I'd want to go to the state with the toughest gun control laws because then I would know that my victims are unarmed and defenseless, and it's going to be easier for me to rob from them or do whatever I want if I know that they they don't have guns. And, you know, this is particularly true for women, which I don't understand why we don't have more women advocating for gun rights and advocating against gun control, because women need guns more than men, right? I mean, they used to call the gun the great equalizer, right? Why? Well, because if you're a 200-pound guy and you're going to assault a 120-pound woman, what chance does she have against you if it's just hand-to-hand combat? She got no chance. I mean, there's no. I mean, I don't care. You know, you watch all these movies, and you see, you know, all these tough women, and they know, you know, martial arts, and they can beat up these big men. That only happens in movies, right? In real life, you know, big men will kick the crap out of, out of young, attractive women. In the movies, you know, they're all like. Um, well, Angelina Jolie, I forget her carry Tomb Raider or whatever. They all they all have uh, almost like superhuman strength. But that's that's Hollywood. That's not that's not reality. But you put a gun, even a little teeny gun in the hands of a 120 pound woman and she could take down a 200, 250 pound guy with one shot. And so if you believe in allowing women to protect themselves, if you don't want to have as many assaults, if you don't want to have as many rapes, then you want women to carry firearms. And you at least want the potential rapists or muggers to think that the woman that they're about to potentially rape or assault might be carrying a gun, because then you might think twice about doing it. You see, if you're sure that your victim is defenseless, then what the hell? Well, you know, what she do, scratch me a little bit, kick me, no big deal, right? That's what a rapist is thinking. I can handle that. But if he's thinking maybe she's got a gun, then maybe I don't want to risk getting shot, right? So this should be more of a women's rights issue too. But no, you've got all these left-wing groups and a lot, you know, a lot of these women groups, and what do they want? They want more gun control. They want to make it, they want to make their fellow women more defenseless in the face of male uh, attackers who might assault them or rape them. But of course, 
Nothing that the left seems to believe makes sense. Everything is hypocritical. Everything that they do, the, the impact of what they want, right? The reverse happens. They can never see the unintended consequences of the things that they want. In that respect, they're kind of like little children. They just talk about things that sound good superficially, but they're not good if you actually examine them. If you actually look beneath the surface, the problem is nobody ever does. Today's financial advisors behave like pro wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.